This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to the Three Interesting Things podcast, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. Eventually. I kind of have to cheat it for these first few weeks. I am your host, Don Grant, joining me today in the co-host chair, host of the Unlicensed Doctor podcast, all the way from Malmo, Sweden, AJ Black. How are you doing, AJ? Hey, I'm doing great. Lovely to be part of this podcast. It is lovely to have you. So tell us uh, tell us what's going on in Sweden with lockdown right now. Uh, well, at the moment, it's going all right. Um, there's still people out. There's still people in bars, though we do have now a um, time limit for that. So it's only until 10 in the evening that you can be out at the bars. But you still have people. So when you, so you have people in bars, but they're actually sitting in the bars. You can sit and you can have a drink with your friends actually in the bar. Yeah, exactly. There's places outside and inside, and the bartenders are very diligent to keep you in your place. So if you come with a group of five people, you cannot have like a random person sitting next to you. However, you can shout at them across the bar if you really want to communicate with somebody new. Which I imagine is nothing new for bars in Sweden. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember going out to a bar and sitting with people, and I, I think I remember what it's like but i know that sweden sweden did approach things differently for the first wave there was no real lockdown was there no no it was so surprising during like summer there's so many people at the beach it was absolutely insane it felt like some sort of amusement park it was kind of wasn't it a micro targeted thing that there were sort of tiny micro lockdowns am i misunderstanding what what happened is that what happened um no i don't really remember um i mean they advise so they always advise the population to stay at home or for elderly people they offered specific times to go to the store so it was very sort of accommodating but there was never any uh, strict government lockdown. Well, welcome to the show. Tell us about the uh, tell us about the Unlicensed Doctor podcast. What do you do on the Unlicensed Doctor? Well, I discuss uh, medical topics for about ten to fifteen minutes. So whatever either the audience suggests or I think of, I talk about it. I mean, whatever medical topic you can think of, I'll I can bring it up there. It would be nice if in today's episode we had three interesting things that all had a medical theme. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's do this. You ready? Yeah. Thing one, the woman who gave birth to rabbits, the woman who gave birth to rabbits, my goodness. Uh, well, she didn't, as we know, she actually didn't. This is one of the long history of medical hoaxes. It is fascinating, isn't it, that there uh, there never seems to be an end to people who will try to get attention, I guess, from hoaxing and tricking the medical community. Why do people do this? Well, I mean, there's a disorder called the Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen right. by proxy, where people pretend to be sick in order to get attention from doctors or friends or family. I guess it's a form of manipulation in some sort. Well, this is a woman from the 18th century named Mary Toft, and she had convinced doctors that she had given birth to rabbits. She was a servant in Surrey, and she surprised her family by going into labor uh, and then produced something that kind of resembled a kitten. Now, you told me before that when you were studying medicine, you had heard about this case even before you and I talked about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, when I had the course in pathophysiology, the doctors brought it up there. Uh, they sort of believed that it was a case of molar pregnancy, and that is when an empty egg gets fertilized and creates a sort of tumor in the uterus. So it that doesn't develop into a viable fetus. It develops into these weird grape-like growths, which can look a lot like rabbit fetuses if when expelled from the woman. 
what it were that this particular case was something as legitimately medical as that, but it sounds like there were much more shenanigans going on. This uh, started with something which I had never really heard of described, which is maternal impression. And even though I generally know the idea, I had, had you heard of maternal impression before? Well, honestly, yes, I have just a couple of <laughs> Yeah, when you and I were talking about it. But the idea <laughs> yeah. of maternal impression was the, was the belief, which is, of course, an obsolete theory. It's an older belief that if there was some kind of mental or physical influence on a woman when she was pregnant uh, on the mother's mind, it would produce some sort of impression, either a physical or some a definite impression, a general impression on the child that you are carrying. There had been talk that John Merrick, the elephant man, that his mother had been frightened by an elephant when she was pregnant. And thus that led to that. Of course, this has all been debunked. But at the time, Mary Toft in, in the 18th century said that she had been frightened by a rabbit out in the fields, which then led her to want to eat rabbits and uh, led her to essentially a lifetime obsession with rabbits. Oh, now, actually, that you talk about this, actually, there might be some truth into it that I remember. Not that you get in you know, impression of animals or something like that. But I think the way, like what the woman eats or how she acts during pregnancy can have sort of epigenetic changes. Oh, in the sure. Fetus. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. And of course, also, we, we happen to discover this cool thing called genetics sometime in the last hundred years, <laughs> which led which led us to not think about that anymore. But anyway, she gave birth to this thing that was sort of kind of a rabbit. And they brought in a local obstetrician slash midwife named John Howard. He doesn't seem to have been terribly thorough with his examination. He was totally convinced by her story. He wrote to some of the biggest doctors around England. He even wrote to the king, King George I, told them of these miraculous births. And it led the entire medical profession down a very, well, I don't want to say dangerous path, but a path that would end up with them being very heavily discredited. Yeah, exactly. No, that's really a dangerous thing to do. I mean, I could imagine maybe the sort of appeal of it at the time. Maybe you wanted to get some notoriety, uh, be published, heard about, because it is an opportunity to really get your name heard. But at the same time, since it was a hoax, it sort of discredits everything you say in the future. Well, when this was going on in 1728, this was the beginnings of the print industry, of the newspaper industry, and the newspapers at the time were very much tabloid newspapers. They loved to print this kind of nonsense. And so they went crazy with it. And she became quite celebrated. Celebrated might be too strong a word, but certainly well, well known around the country as the woman who was giving birth to rabbits. So the king sent his own doctor to investigate. He arrived when she was in labor with her 15th rabbit. What are you going to do with that 15th rabbit? You're running out of bedrooms at that point. <laughs> so this guy was actually, he believed that she was genuine. He took some of the offspring back to London. He showed them to the king, showed them to the Prince of Wales, at which point they decided to send in the big boys. A surgeon was sent by the royal household to have a look. And this surgeon, what he did was he took some of the rabbits back and opened them up and found that their dung and some of the things inside them contained corn and various other grains, which showed that they, of course, could not have gestated inside of Miss Toft, but hadn't been purchased and brought home and had been manually inserted. Please feel free to do with that phrase what you will, had been manually inserted inside of Mrs. Toft. I mean, she was very de dedicated to this hoax. I mean, it's not every day that... <laughs> oh, she was so dedicated that it wasn't just rabbits. She also gave birth to other things like a cat's leg, uh, a hog's bladder. There were a few things that kind of gave it away. Number one was that there were rumors around town that her husband had been buying an awful lot of rabbits lately. Uh, there were... <laughs> she, she also carried rabbits with her a lot of the time. 
The other thing that kind of gave away the game a little bit was when this surgeon, when the king's surgeon decided to have a look at the rabbits, he noticed that the ones that had been dismembered had been dismembered in a very, very efficient way, almost as if it had been done with something that you would do, you would have around the kitchen. Oh, yes. So one part rabbit for the stew, one for the vagina, one for the stew, one for the <laughs> <laughs> so she was finally found out what they did was they said to her listen we need to do some medical examinations on you and they are not going to be comfortable after a while she finally threw her hands in the air and said uh i did it i did it i i'm i'm a fraud i'm sure she probably didn't put it that way but she said that she was a fraud and she was put on trial oddly enough she was put on trial for being quote an abominable cheat and imposter in pretending to be delivered of several monstrous births. I feel like that law was just written for her. <laughs> I can't imagine it existing beforehand. They just made something up. Uh, something. She was she was case number 24601 for that law. <laughs> Everybody was giving birth to all these crazy, crazy things. But but actually, she was never charged and never sent to prison. She just, they finally said, ah, okay, go away. And she went back and uh, lived the rest of her life in relative obscurity. But there was a lot of aftermath of this because the medical profession and sort of their gullibility uh, became quite a big target. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of uh, scrutiny for the doctors that presented this. So I think they had to go not into hiding, but had to write articles under aliases. Especially some of the first doctors who were sent down and decided that she was legitimate. Many of them essentially died paupers because they could not work anymore and were so discredited. It ruined their lives. But it's still kind of interesting to see that uh, even back then, uh, there was some sort of backlash if you were to make something up as a doctor. So it's kind of nice to see that there was that sort of balances and checks for the situation. And the other thing is that you would have back in the time this uh, the skepticism of medicine and the gullibility of medicine. Thank goodness we're at a time now where everyone trusts doctors <laughs> all the time now and no one is making medicine and science look like it's in any way able to be doubted. Do I detect some sarcasm in your voice, perhaps? <laughs> I don't know. Ask me again on January 20th. I will do. Thing two. And for thing number two, we always throw it to the guest host. What is interesting thing number two, AJ? ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is it still used today? It is still used today. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that a lot of people would not necessarily know how much it's used today. I think most people would know that there are still uses of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, but I don't, uh, even until I started doing a bit of research on it, I didn't know how much it was still used today. Yes, same here. Like when I started working at the hospital, I knew about it a little bit in my studies, but I remember my first experience with it. I was sitting in a room with a patient and he was so excited about ECT. He loved it. He was, really? yeah, he was ecstatic about it. He just wanted more. <laughs> And the doctors had to tell him, like, no, you've done your 12 sessions, like the treatment is complete. <laughs> like, you cannot have any more electroconvulsive ther therapy. But I just remember the joy in his voice and how happy he was that it changed his life so much. So that was sort of my first uh, experience with it. And then about six months later, they put me actually to work in the basement to work with electroconvulsive therapy where we did the treatment for the patients. So you've actually done you've done ECT on people. Yes, uh, for over six, eight months. So in total, yeah. <laughs> so now I, I maybe, I mean, I have some stuff about ECT, but I can ask you as we go here. So, so most of the time when people are prescribed electroconvulsive therapy, they are prescribed it for things like 
depression, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So usually in a depressive state or also it's a very good treatment for pregnant women or women that have given birth because there's no side effects of the medication for the fetus, like, for example, producing the milk or affecting the growth of the fetus inside the woman. But wait, uh, wouldn't wouldn't the electrical charge have some impact on the fetus? Not really, because it's so small and it's only sort of connected to the brain. So you... uh, Well, how it works is that you put two electrodes, so one at the side of the head and one at the top. That is one type of treatment. There's another one where you put the electrodes at the both sides of the head in the temporal region, but that has more side effects, usually go with the side version. And it causes sort of an epileptic attack in the patient, uh, but it has like no other electric effect in the body. Right. Like you can actually touch the patient without getting electric electrocuted yourself. Essentially, it, it starts a small controlled seizure, right? Yeah. Okay. It's actually really, it's really interesting. Before electricity, they used to induce these seizures by causing hypoglycemia. So they would inject a person with a, uh, like a lot of, um, insulin and remove uh, all the glucose, which is actually so much more dangerous yeah. than electricity. But there were a few things. They, that, that was insulin shock therapy that they did. You'd kind of yeah. be overdosed with insulin. Before that, have you seen about deep sleep therapy? Do you see that they tried that? Mm, no. Deep sleep therapy came before that, which is where they would pretty much overdose the patient on barbiturates, which... Kind of worked, but also kind of killed a few people. So that's, you know, you don't want to do both of those things at the same time. So so they tried this deep sleep therapy thing. They tried the insulin shock therapy. It had the same idea. It sort of worked, but killed people and caused brain damage. You don't want that. So then along came this Italian doctor, Ugo Curletti. Is that his name? Am I saying his name right? Who watched pigs be anesthetized with electricity before being butchered, which is a great way to plan how you're going to treat human beings, uh, and came up with this, which was first used in 1938. Yes, yeah, so it's been quite a while. I think um, initially it was a bit more difficult because um, they would do it without anesthetics or more specifically the muscle relaxants, which could actually cause some people to break their bones because of the strong muscle contractions. Yeah, yeah. They would bite tongues and break bones. And uh, the, the funny thing is ECT which originally was, it has two things that have led it to have a negative stigma, which if you talk to most doctors in particular in North America, I'm not sure if it's the same in Sweden, there are two things that cause it to have a negative stigma. Number one was that it was first called electroshock therapy, which, you know, obviously they hadn't heard of branding back in 1938, but if you're going to come up with something, calling it electroshock therapy is not going to have people lining up at your door. Call it something else. Call it your personal power surge. I don't know, anything. But The other thing, and you don't know what I'm going to say. I'm going to see if you can guess what I'm going to say. What would you say is the main thing that have ca- that has caused the negative stigma around mm, I think the depiction in movies. Is there one movie in particular? Uh, yes. No, I can't remember the name of it. I just remember, was it uh, that actor? I want to say Jackson Nicholson, but I think... That, you're right. You are on the right track because you, that is 100% what I was going to say. Most doctors will say that the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and that very famous scene where Randall P. McMurphy gets ECT uh, and goes into tremendous... Uh, painful looking convulsions has led more people to believe that that's the way that ECT goes, 
when in fact today it is a million miles from that. Now, back in the day, the first dosage was about 120 volts. Now that's about the voltage of a typical United States power outlet. Uh, that that can cause tissue damage. That's not a good thing. What's the voltage now? Like, what's what are you what are you at now? What are you running at now? Hmm, a bit lower. I have one of my old uh, let's see ECT uh, printouts. Um, all right, let's see. Uh... So wait, so you have you have an ECT printout right there in your hand? Yes, I certainly do. I used to read the, these every morning. <laughs> and does it say what the what the voltage is? Yes, let's see. So um, the charge, uh, the energy given was 78.8 joules. Oh, okay. And the charge was 448 MC. So now... When this is done, the idea behind this is that it causes all of the neurons to fire in unison. It gives you a small controlled seizure. What what does it? How does this actually help? Because m- many of the people that I have seen, I, I watched a very interesting video from a woman who has had ECT recently and talked about how it helped her with a very significant depression. This is also for people who can't take medication. What exactly does it do medically that causes such a miraculous improvement in many of these people? Actually, that's a really fascinating question, which I've been asking for a while, because it seems that it's not really known how it works. Because I tried to read books about it and really get into it once I started working in a department. But there's always a lot of theories, like, as you mentioned, that there's a lot of discharge in the neurons in the brain, which might cause sort of people to lose depression or all, all of those things. But there was also an interesting study which really got stuck in my head was that I think it was people that have seizures, um, like naturally, have uh, almost zero chance of developing schizophrenia in adulthood. So it's a sort of like a, a balancing act of the brain. So I'm not sure how the mechanism works behind that, but I think there still needs to be more research done into how it actually works. Yeah, they still are not 100% sure from what I could tell what it actually does. But if you look at some people who do suffer from things like depression and bipolar disorder, many of them right after having the treatment feel almost immediately better, which is to me is just astonishing. Yeah, it was very interesting. I remember the main doctor in the department brought up this research study saying it was also dependent how the doctor presents the treatment. So if uh, as a doctor, you're positive to the treatment, actually more patients have a more beneficial effect of it. Oh, interesting. So like a, like a placebo aspect of it too. Yeah, exactly. But it was more placebo from the doctor's point of view. So it didn't really matter how the patient felt about it <laughs> because the doctor was happy with it. But we do know that ECT does have an impact on brain chemistry, right? And on the hormone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a discharge in the um, neurons of the brain. I mean, there is also some sort of research done that if you do it too much, you can cause inflammation in the brain too. So it shouldn't be overdone either. There's also apparently short-term memory loss, right? Some people can't remember things from recent... Yeah, and the losing ability uh, to remember certain words. I knew that was a rather big deal for some of the patients that I treated. Hey, speaking speaking of schizophrenia, I, this maybe I'll even save this for another episode. But uh, did you know? Had you heard there was a study that was done recently that says that if you are born blind, you cannot develop schizophrenia. There has not been a single case in human history of anyone who has been born blind who has developed schizophrenia. Which, when you think about it, is quite astonishing because schizophrenia is not uncommon. No, exactly. And you would think that it would be, uh, they could also have like hallucinations uh, with sound and things like that. Uh, but no, I haven't uh, really seen that research before. That sounds actually really interesting. Okay. Tell you what, when we have you on the show next time, we're going to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to read up on it. Thing three, the tumor you can grow that has eyes and teeth. 
Now, this really does sound horribly disturbing, but the idea behind teratoma, which are these tumors that some people grow, is really fascinating from a medical perspective. Uh, it's just that they are, on the surface, quite gruesome. Oh, quite definitely. I mean, they can have um, a horrible sort of uh, presentation. They almost look like deformed uh, creatures because they could have uh, teeth, uh, hair, uh, maybe pieces of eyeballs. So it's almost like if you took a, a person in a clay form and squished it into a ball, that's essentially what a teratoma is. Yeah, it does look like something created by industrial light and magic or something. It's for for the listener, if you if you feel confident enough in your own strength of stomach, please feel free to do a Google image search for teratoma so you can see what we're talking about. If you don't feel like that, then please don't do that because they are very very powerful to look at. The word teratoma comes from the Greek for monster and tumor, which when you look at one of these things make absolute sense. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's the perfect description, and uh, yeah, it's um, basically developed in somebody's gonads, so either the ovaries or the testicles. So it cannot develop anywhere else because they have the cells that can turn into all these lovely tissues. <laughs> now, I've 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 read also that they can develop kind of around your backbone, like in sort of in the same general area, but around your coccyx. Yeah, exactly. Because I would imagine maybe they have a um, more of the stem cells. <laughs> So correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, tumors, we know tumors start when just there's a random mutation of a cell's DNA and it just makes it divide and divide and divide and divide and divide. So teratoma, these form from the germ cells, as you say, in the ovaries and the testes, mm -hmm. which is where they're found. And consequently, it takes that division of cells and does it with all the same things that form things like hair, teeth, eyes. And that's why you can have these things pulled out of your body that look like these tiny little homunculi with, with these things that, that are, I mean, we're talking fully formed teeth. This is not something that's uh, like, I'm not exaggerating, right? We're talking fully formed teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Fully formed teeth. It would look like something you would find in somebody's mouth, but in the ovary or testicle. <laughs> You probably don't want testicles. I mean, teeth in the testicles. I'm I'm crossing my legs as we speak. <laughs> so now these seem more common in women, correct? Yeah, definitely. They're also less dangerous in women for some reason. I'm sure there might be some explanation why, but I don't remember. I think for men having teratomas, it's also more malignant and dangerous. Now, one of the things I could not find as I was looking through this is how how common they are. Like, do you do do you know what the the general occurrence is in the general population? I don't think it is that common per se. The sacrococcal ones that you mentioned, they're found in about one out of 40,000 people. That's not a tiny so, number. I guess not. I mean, it's more It's more than I would think. It's sort of like I, 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 had, I had, unfortunately, I had an acquaintance who had um, uh, necrotizing fasciitis, the, the flesh eating oh, disease. Yeah. And yeah, and when and when she developed that, I actually found out that it was significantly more common than I had given it credit for. I think the number was significantly higher than I thought. Yeah, but if you think about it, like if you were to like put your hand in a bowl of um, I don't know numbered balls and you were to pull out like four thousand, I think you would have to like pull out quite a few before you would reach that number, just statistically speaking. This is true. Uh, I, I did see that for, going back to teratomas. That in two thousand seventeen, there were Japanese doctors who found a teratoma in a teenage girl that had grown teeth, hair, and the beginnings of a brain. Oh, that would be kind of interesting to see if there was some neurological activity. It's almost like a blueprint gone wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And the, the interesting thing that I find about these, which is that they're not entirely horrifically awful because teratoma 
have actually led to positive research in stem cell and embryonic development. Yeah, definitely. And you could also have like an extra tooth in case you lose one of yours. <laughs> a teratoma will grow you a new one. Maybe it's a good possibility. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you knocked my tooth out. Hang on. I'm storing an extra one in my left testicle. Yeah, because maybe that would allow people to sort of, um, in the laboratory setting, grow people new livers or hearts if they are older in the future. Maybe there's some way to harness this power for sort of good instead of, you know, just producing this ball of random assortment of tissues. Well, and the other issue is that you do have uh, ethical issues surrounding the source of human stem cells when it comes to stem cell research. A lot of people are against stem cell research because many of them come from embryos. And these are actually stem cells which are coming from something that is, doesn't have the potential to become a functional human being. Yeah, exactly. So I think that would, would be a positive thing. I'm just looking over now. Apparently, it's also found in certain animals. So mares and mountain lions and canines have been reported to also have teratomas. But they can't be told that it's completely fine like we can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trying to explain a teratoma to a dog. <laughs> I, I do have to wonder, because I was thinking about this when we were talking about ECT, you do have to wonder about the psychological aspect. Let me let me go back to ECT for a second and then come back to this, which is when it, when it comes to ECT, do, uh, you've actually performed ECT on people. Is yes. there still any stigma from people like people being ashamed of actually having it? Hmm, ashamed? I don't think so, but scared, yeah. Scared? Now, scared I would get, yeah. But but I'm wondering if people would be like, I'm, I'm not going to tell my friends that I had this because it's so shameful, which it's not. No, not, not really. I, I do know that, for example, I kind of wanted to create a documentary about ECT because I thought it would be very interesting to bring to light, especially that I, I, even myself, I haven't really heard about it until I started working with it. But I remember um, the hospital was very concerned about it being brought out to the public because they know that it has such a negative association. But I would think that having documentary about it would show sort of the positives of it because I saw so much happiness come from it and people who are feeling horrible were feeling so much better. So you, you did see the positive outcomes of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was a number of people that um, after three or four treatments, like completely flipped. Uh, I specifically remember oh. somebody with a schizophrenia-like situation where they got catatonic. So they were not moving, they were not eating, they were essentially like stuck in the same position and they couldn't even speak so after two or three treatments it was like a flip had switched in them and they were able to speak and eat and talk and laugh it was quite extraordinary to see and quite lovely as well because no medication was helping them which sort of leads me back to the teratoma because if you are one of these people who has a tumor taken out of your you know your ovaries that has eyes and teeth in it i, I would imagine that's going to have a psychological impact as well yeah, I suppose, especially if they show it to you as they remove it, they're like, well, I was go. thinking that, like, I wonder if that, like, because if you've seen these things, and I've seen these things, they are really quite daunting looking. I, I, I don't even, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a, a strong stomach. But when I look at these things, it is, they are quite shocking when you see some of them with the hair, the wet hair coming out, like two abnormal teeth, <laughs> an eyeball. If you take this, if you are a doctor, and you are a doctor, yes. if you take this out of somebody, and you look at it, and that person says to you, can I see it? Would, would you show them? guess so. I remember when I was doing um, I mean, this wasn't a tar teratoma but when I was doing some help with surgeries in Poland, like um, people wanted to keep um, their kidney stones or their gallstones so we would give that to the people but a lot of times you have to send these to pathophysiology for sampling uh, so I'm not sure if they're able to keep all of it or maybe they can get it returned once it is sampled at the laboratory to just double check if there's no other growths in there. I Actually, I had a kidney stone and when I passed my kidney stone I had to send it off to the lab for sampling. 
sampling. Oh, did they bring it back to you? <laughs> Do you still have it somewhere framed? They they didn't give it back to me. But the funny thing is, I passed the kidney stone in a public restaurant. I had to go to the bathroom and I and I passed it. But I, the doctor told me I actually had to give the kidney stone for sampling. So here out comes the kidney stone in a public toilet. I had to roll up my sleeve, fish down into the toilet. And dig that bad boy out. And let me tell you, that was one of the highlights of my life. Uh, was it really painful? I hear that's supposed to be one of the worst pains. It was um, unpleasant. Let us, let's, mm. let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a real trooper, like going in there and uh, snatching it for sampling. Did they find anything interesting? In they, they found eyes and teeth. <laughs> and that will do it for this week's episode. AJ, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Sweden. Do you have any socials you want to throw our way? Uh, yeah, I have a Twitter called at the unlicensed, um, and then uh, my podcast, the unlicensed uh, doctor podcast, that you can t search on Google and find it. I'm on iTunes podcast and some other popular podcast forums. Like I sign myself up everywhere. <laughs> that's that's the way to do it. Throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah, exactly. Will you come back on the show sometime? Yes, definitely. This was a blast. Ah, I would love it. Thank you so so much. Thank you. What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at 3, that's the number 3, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. <laughs>